How do you respond when the sky falls in? Are you going through life and it's sunny, cozy, and warm, and then suddenly chaos attacks? A lump in your breast, a bad prostate report, an auto accident, a bypass surgery. We all want life to be sunny days on the beach in Hawaii, but reality states that these days are often invaded by dark, threatening storms of destruction. This is Truth Encounter, and today's lesson titled, The Wrath of the Lamb from Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, will give us powerful encouragement and insight into the dark times. Now for some powerful insights from Revelation chapter 6 on how to handle things when the sky really does fall in, let's join Dave. You see, what I want, I want life to be, you know, sitting on the beach down in South Texas, watching the waves come rolling in, feeling the nice warm sand in our feet, you know, feeling the rays on our body, and seeing that beautiful blue sky. That's what I want life to be. You know, I got to thinking yesterday about the way that yesterday went. In the morning, you know, the sun kind of came out, and it was threatening, but really not too bad. And, And there was a lot of time yesterday where the sun came blasting through the trees, And for the first time in the history of my life, I've grown grass for the very first time. Can you believe that? When I was a kid back in New Jersey, my mom and dad were always trying to grow grass. And we always played football where they were trying to grow grass. And the two things are incompatible, at least back in New Jersey. So we never had any grass. I came here to Texas and I just got some new grass started. And an intern came down from back east and I told him to put some fertilizer down in our lawn. And he ruined the whole thing. I mean, I could not believe it. He burned up the whole lawn. And ever since then, we've had trees that grew up. It was too shady. But this year... I finally went to Jan Bauckham's house and saw that they had trees there and, and saw the kind of grass under their trees. So I planted the right kind of grass and miracle of all miracles, God was gracious and the, and the rains came and the sun came and now there's grass. And I was mowing the grass yesterday and I was thinking, you know, this is the way life ought to be. Mowing in a beautiful newly mowed lawn with that beautiful smell and the sun coming. But I live in Texas. And so by the time the afternoon came, suddenly that beautiful sunny sky becomes the sky rolling back like a scroll. And we start to get these awesome reports coming in, you know, that there's hail out there. And and then we have to start listening to the radio and listening for the sirens because who knows whether there's going to be big, massive tornadoes that come rolling through. That's the way life is. Now, don't you find that when the storm comes that you feel like it just shouldn't be like this? Anybody identify with that? It just shouldn't be like all this rain, all this hail. And I start to think, and man, all this work that I put into getting this house, getting the lawn the way we want it to be, and inviting friends over, and all this joy, man, in a split second of time, a big Texas roller can come, come right through that thing, and wham, it'll suck up all that grass and leave nothing but bare ground there and bare stone. And that's a bummer. But, you know, that's the way life is. In fact, as you walk through life, life is a series of sunny days, beach days, invaded by great crises. In other words, you're going sailing through life really comfortably, and then all of a sudden you hear, maybe I've got a melanoma, or I have a melanoma. And suddenly our life is thrown into a storm. Or suddenly we hear, maybe we have MS. A young married couple, and we're blowing through life, and and we're really getting things going, and then suddenly we don't feel right, and the terrible specter of maybe we have MS, maybe it develops as it has in some of our family, it turned out that it really was MS. 
In other words, that's the way life is. In fact, in my pastoral ministry, as I go through a week, I go from the tremendous rejoicing of a telephone call that comes and it says that a new baby has been born and you, you go and see that new baby and everybody's rejoicing or you go to a high school graduation and everybody's high as a kite because it's graduation time and the kids are all excited about the expectations and I can go right from a moment like that and go home and the telephone rings and I just hear that a dad had a stroke. And they're in intensive care. And we go to the hospital and, and a neurosurgeon comes in and a pulmonary surgeon comes in. And a family just crashes in this despair. I want to share with you, you know, the way that you respond when the storm comes is a very key reality in your life and mine. How do we respond when the sky falls in? What the book of Revelation does, in fact, is we argue about the timing of the rapture and we argue about how long the tribulation will last and we argue about whether or not we should go through the tribulation or not. In the midst of all that debate about eschatology, it's really easy to forget some things that are right there staring us in the face about the book of Revelation. You see, what the book of Revelation does tell us is that that last final seven years is really only an intensification of what's been happening down through history. You see, down through history, God's people tend to get coasting. They tend to get set in their ways. They tend to go through the routine of worship. They begin to start to live just for now. They begin to allow idols to begin to come into their life. and They begin living for those things. And then, wham, God invades. And tremendous cataclysmic things happen. For example, Israel would be safe and secure in the northern kingdom of Israel, enjoying one of the most prosperous times you can ever imagine. The prophets will begin to say that you've taken everything for granted. You're starting to live just for your home. You're starting to live just for the money. You're starting to live just for this life. And you've forgotten all about the reality of the God that met you at Mount Sinai. And so the prophets will predict God's going to enter your history and the Assyrians are going to come down and devastate your land. And so Assyrian armies marched and they devastated the children of Israel and God's presence was powerfully in that tremendous invasion. And everyone scratching their head and saying, how can this all work out? The southern kingdom of Judah, many years after that, suddenly they were just the same complacent, idolatrous, prideful people just living for now, just living for their stuff, just living for their homes, just living for, for this present life. And the prophet Jeremiah says the Babylonians this time are going to come down. And the prophet Habakkuk asks God some questions. And, I, and where are you, God? Why aren't you meeting the needs of your people? And, the, and God speaks to the prophet Habakkuk saying, man, I've got a bigger plan than you could ever imagine. I'm going to use the ungodly Babylonian empire to come down and, and deal with my people, discipline my people. You see, the reality of life is that as we go through life, God speaks to us in the crises of life. And the way that you and I respond in the crisis of life shows where our heart is. Now, you either do one of two things. You can either get mad in a crisis. And the truth of the matter is that some of your friends that you know have become very bitter. Mary and I were at a Bible study on Thursday night. And the group was sharing about a precious friend who's experienced some real sledgehammers in life. Life has disintegrated. Life has come unglued for this person. And everybody in the room that knew that person talked about this person's bitterness and their anger. They hate God. In fact, this person, that my friends have tried to talk to this person about Jesus, and it'll have nothing to do with it. He just curses the name of Jesus. Very ethical man, very moral, very hard worker, a person you would depend upon to really meet your needs in business. But when you try to talk to him about God, try to talk to him about Jesus, man, the anger comes bellowing forth. 
And yet I can go over any day of the week and go over to Virginia Thomas's and here's a woman that's been flat on her back for the last eight or nine years. Now she has a trach and she can barely talk. And yet when you talk to Virginia she'll, and she learns about somebody else's trouble, she'll be saying, I just can't believe how someone is suffering like that. And her eyes are totally focused on other people. And she, there's a light in her eyes even in the midst of all this suffering. Now how can that be? One person still up and walking and has experienced some sledgehammer blows and they're, they're angry, they're, they're bitter. And another person is in a much worse state and yet they're filled with joy, filled with, with exuberance, filled with praise. They're hanging there and they're still connected with God. How can that be? Turn to Revelation chapter 6 because as we turn to the sixth seal judgment, the Lord Jesus opens the sixth seal. And what we have in these sealed judgments is God's giving us an overview of what's going to be happening through the tribulation period. But he also gives us an overview of the kind of things that happen in our life. The reality of the world that we live in. It's filled with war. It's filled with famine. It's filled with the devastation that famine can bring. The plagues and the suffering and the death. That's just the reality of life. And the tribulation period just accelerates those things and brings all of them to a climax. We turn to Revelation chapter 6 and we read in verse 12. Look at it. I watched. John the Apostle watched as he opened the sixth seal. The Lord Jesus is opening the sixth seal of the book of destiny. There was a great earthquake and the sun turned black like sackcloth and made of goat hair. And the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. What's going on? These are portents. These are symbols of the end. In fact, when you go to Mount Sinai, when you go to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19... You have this mountain, this gruesome mountain, barren mountain, there in the southern peninsula of Sinai. And Exodus 19 tells us that as two million Israelites gathered together around that mountain, the mountain began to shake. And a gigantic thunderstorm came up. And there was just claps of thunder and lightning bolts and lightning strikes. And the winds came. And God from Mount Sinai said, don't approach the mountain. It's very important as we understand about our God that our God is the gentle Savior. He's the one that came as a baby in a manger. But in order to really understand the impact of the baby that came, you also need to understand the full biblical revelation of the might and the power of Almighty God. And one of the places where you see the incredible awesomeness of God's power is in a big storm. You know, when it's a nice sunny day and we're just kind of going along, we're mowing our grass and the sun is shining and the breeze is blowing gently. You know, we just kind of take life for granted. We enjoy it, but man, we feel like, man, this is great. But boy, when suddenly the clouds roll up and just the description here, it's a beautiful poetic description of what happens in a thunderstorm when that big bank of clouds just begins to look like the sky is rolling up. And then it becomes pitch black. You've all been in a bright sunny day when suddenly the sun goes black. You've all seen the weird conditions where you can see the moon during the daytime and you look at the moon filtered through a storm bank and it turns blood red. It's awesome. It's scary. 
You've all seen the hail that comes like gigantic, you know, softballs. If you lived up in Amarillo or out in West Texas, and you've, you've been in a storm where it's just demolishing everything. Big softball-sized hail smashing through your roof. Down through the history of Revelation, God has used those realities of the power of a storm to remind us of the awesome power and might of God. And it's symbolic of the great invasion of God into human history. And scholars debate, like, is there going to be a great earthquake during the tribulation period? Is there going to be a great storm that's worldwide and all that? And what happened in the midst of that debate is those that say it's just symbolic, those that say it's just symbolic will nullify the tremendous effect that takes place because this passage is going to tell us that all the kings of the earth down to the poorest person on earth trembles in fear at what happens. And what we have here is, is an example of, you know, sure there's symbolic language here. Sure the Old Testament prophets use this language as portents of the end. For example, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 29, we can see how the Old Testament prophets use this same kind of symbolism. Turn to Isaiah. We'll just look at a couple of these Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah chapter 29. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to the southern kingdom of Israel. It's in the period of when the Assyrians are beginning to threaten the kingdom of Israel. Those living in Jerusalem are a lot like us. They're carrying around their worship and they're following God and supposedly, but they're really living for themselves. Look what it says at the beginning of this chapter. It says, woe to you, Ariel. That's another name for Jerusalem. It's a word in Hebrew that sounds a lot like a lion. And it's another name that God used for the city of Jerusalem. Woe to you, the lion city, Ariel, God's lion city, the city where David settled. You add year to year. You let your cycle of festivals go and come. In other words, what they're saying is that Jerusalem's in a routine. Maybe you're in a routine. Maybe you're just going through, and maybe you're in one of those sunny periods of your life. That's the way Jerusalem is pictured as we begin this passage. But look what God says. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and she will lament. She will be like to, to me like an altar hearth. They're going to become like a sacrificial altar. It says here they're going to be, that they're going to be brought low. They're going to speak with mumbles from the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust your speech will whisper. Why? Because they've been devastated. A tremendous devastation is going to come to the city of Jerusalem. And it describes this devastation in the next verse. But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come. He'll come with thunder. Here's the same symbolism we have in the book of Revelation. He's going to come with thunder. He's going to come with an earthquake. He's going to come with great noise, with a windstorm, with a tempest, with flames of devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her, and her fortress and besiege her will be as if it were a dream. With a vision of the night. And Isaiah goes on to describe how the enemies of the Lord that come against the city of Jerusalem, when they're complacently living there in safety, he describes how a mighty invasion from God is going to deliver the city and destroy the nations. You say, Dave, what are they talking about? In 701 BC, the Assyrian army destroyed the northern kingdom. It already had done that in 722. It came back. These tremendous armies, the Assyrian armies were so gruesome, they would, on the border of the land, they would take the skulls, they would cut off the heads of their victims, and they would put these heads up on stakes at the border of the land. And that's the way they, they were like the first uh, stormtroopers that used terror to just destroy and just, just kill their enemies and destroy them with fear. 
In 701 BC, it looked like the Assyrians were going to destroy the southern kingdom of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah was, had all the people in his walled city. A man named Rabshakeh, who was Zanacharib's general, came and he began to cry out to the people in their language, saying, we've already destroyed the northern kingdom. We've already destroyed Lachish, which was a very powerful city of the north. We've already destroyed all the cities around you. What makes you think that you're going to be able to exist and you're going to be able to live? And Hezekiah had his messengers tell him, the Assyrian representative, don't speak in the Hebrew language. Don't speak in the language that the people can understand because it was like uh, this tremendous kind of an ancient equivalent to propaganda. What did Hezekiah do? He went to the temple and he laid out the, the request from the Assyrians for surrender. He took the paper that the Assyrians in Akrib had written the, the surrender orders upon. And he spread him out before the Lord. A very moving scene. And Hezekiah put his face down. He knelt down, put his face in those surrender orders. And he said, oh, Yahweh, you've been with my people in the past. You defended us when Moses delivered us through the Red Sea. What should I do? I ask you to deliver us now. And that very night, that very night, 180,000 Assyrian troops died. A plague broke out among the Assyrian army. And they died like flies. The confusion, the disease, and the death caused them to turn upon one another. And they fled back to the north. And the southern kingdom of Jerusalem was never destroyed. And it's very interesting when you read the Assyrian, uh, the Assyrian annals from that period. Zanacharib describes how he comes and takes one city after another. And the Assyrian king boasts about these great victories. And he comes to Jerusalem. And he talks about encamping against Jerusalem. He talks about besieging the city. But he never brags about taking the city. Obviously because of propaganda purposes. You have nothing about the plague. But we do know that for the next generation, about 20 years, the Assyrian armies were not able to mount an invasion down into the south. Because of the tremendous devastation that took place under, under Hezekiah's rule. What Isaiah is talking about is that God can invade human history to defend his people. But you know, I don't think that Isaiah 29 is totally fulfilled in what happened in 701. Because the picture that the prophet Isaiah gives is a much bigger picture. It's a much more grandiose picture. It doesn't describe just the Assyrian nation coming, but all the nations coming. As we develop the ideas of Revelation further, we're going to find out that world history is moving towards a tremendous focus upon the city of Jerusalem. And there's going to come a time, according to the book of Revelation, and according to other Old Testament prophets, that talk about a time at the end, what they call the day of the Lord. Zechariah describes this in Zechariah chapter 14, and he uses exactly the same terminology. It talks about all the army of the world converging on Jerusalem, and they're ready to snuff out that city. And finally, the Jewish people, down on their knees, like Hezekiah of old, with their face down in the dust, just like Isaiah predicted. They're moaning. They're in despair. You can barely hear their voice. Suddenly, Zechariah says they will look upon the one that they pierced, and they will weep. They will weep for him. They'll weep over the rejection of him. There will be a totally new heart. And what the Old Testament prophets predicted is that when that happens, Yahweh in heaven is going to invade history. One of the things I want you to know about your Christian faith, you live in a world that believes that God is an impersonal force. The idea that there is no ultimate personal divine being. 
What there is is energy out there. That's what the theory of evolution teaches you. The ultimate thing in the universe is mass and energy, which are interchangeable. And the way that you get connected with the divine thing is you meditate and you empty yourself of yourself. You empty yourself of all rational thought and you let just pure energy come into you. And then you can use that energy to fight your battle, to win your success. You go to some of you business people will go to sales management seminars and they're going to teach you what you need to do is you need to tap into the forces within. You can do it within. You need to learn how to, how to tap into this universal energy. And you do it using this quiet half an hour meditation techniques. And you're going to learn how to get victory over your opponents. And how to make your sales and how to make it happen. I want you to know that that's a very ancient belief. There's nothing new about that. Nothing modern about it. It's been present since the Tower of Babel. It's the idea that there's no ultimate divine personal being who has a standard of righteousness, a standard of morality that you're one day going to stand before and he's going to hold you accountable. You see, the force doesn't hold you accountable for right and wrong and choices that you make and whether or not you respond to his message. The force can be good or evil. It depends upon how you use it. But the Bible says no. The Bible says there's an ultimate personal divine being. He's awesome. He's mighty. He's much bigger than you and I are. And what he's doing at the end of time is he's shouting in the great crisis. At the end of the tribulation period, as as the sixth seal is opened, things begin to crescendo. And God begins to shout. And the way that God shouts is when you're in L.A. and suddenly the ground beneath your feet begins to rock and roll. You see, you're built to know that when you walk on the ground, it's secure, it's safe, it stays still. How many of you have ever been in an earthquake? How does it make you feel? Man, it it destroys everything that you believe. It destroys everything you hold dear about the earth. The earth is solid. The earth, when you walk, stays still. And suddenly the earth becomes like water. You see, earthquakes take away your sense of established order. It's a fall day. It was in San Francisco, the middle of the World Series. If anything's pure American apple pie and happy living and gentle living. And man, even my mother used to watch the World Series every single October. And suddenly, man, the whole game stops. The whole stadium is rocking and rolling. The whole San Francisco area begins to shake. And the World Series is over. And buildings crash and highways crash. That's what this text is saying. It's happening already in our world. We can say, well, I don't believe the revelation is literally true. Listen, you live in a world where earthquakes happen. We talk about hailstones. You've all been in storms that scared the willies out of you, and you saw big hailstorms crushing through the back window of your car. It's not just symbolic. These things happen in your culture. Sure, we've had the things that man produces, the war, the famine that flows from war, the terrible death and sickness that flow from that. But as we move towards the end of the tribulation period, God says, Antichrist, that's enough. We read in the last seal that Antichrist had had martyred many of God's children. What the book of Revelation is about, it's about the wrath of the Lamb. And what it's saying that the wrath of the Lamb, as the revelation moves towards its climax, and we're going to have this as we move towards the climax of the trumpets, as we move towards the climax of the bold judgments, every single time we're going to end with a powerful manifestation of the person of God. And he's going to do it through the forces of his creation. 
And the one that stilled the storm in the Sea of Galilee, this time is going to generate the storm. And the whole world is going to be rocking and rolling and shaking. And the issue is, how will people respond to that? At the end of time, the whole issue of eternity will depend upon how will people respond to that. And how have you responded to the crisis of the past several months? Have these storms caused you to realize that it is not enough to live pursuing the next dollar or living for the next great party? We all need to have an answer for what is going to happen to us the split second physical life ceases. Jesus Christ alone can give us a definitive answer to this question. Trust Him. Depend upon His death to pay the penalty for the guilt of your sin. Believe that He rose again from the dead on the third day, and please invite Him to come into your life. Believe in the biblical Jesus, and there is no need to fear. Let me invite you to talk to Him right now and ask Him to come inside your life and give you hope, a hope that will never disappoint. 